Good morning, Emmanuel Anglican Church. I am so happy to be with you for the last sermon in our Jeremiah series. I join you for the second one, and I'm just so grateful that I can be with you. Um, I want to tell you, I bring you back to 2001 when my family moved to Long Island to take a pastorate out there in the Three Village area uh, near Stony Brook, New York. Um, Good morning, Emmanuel Anglican Church. I am so happy to be with you for the last sermon in our Jeremiah series. Good morning, Emmanuel Anglican Church. I am so happy to be with you for the last sermon in our Jeremiah series. I join you for the second one, and I'm just so grateful that I can be with you. Um, I want to tell you, I bring you back to 2001 when my family moved to Long Island to take a pastorate out there in the Three Village area uh, near Stony Brook, New York. Um, shortly into the pastorate, this, this family came to me and said, we would really like you to consider taking, adopting our two-year-old dog, Dwight. And I looked at Dwight and he's just, he was like so sweet, like a hound dog, like half beagle, maybe half lab, uh, just the sweetest face. And they said, yeah, he's just always sweet. He's always lovable. He's great with kids. He's, he's obedient. He never runs. He's just the best dog ever. Best family dog. So we adopted him. Well, I found out some of those things were true. He was great with the kids. He was amazing. But some of the things were, I think, Maybe outright lies just to get us to adopt Dwight. So for instance, he was really disobedient and he loved to run. I nicknamed him Houdini because he had found more ways to escape from the house. And he didn't just run. I mean, he, he forsook us. He left us for like 24 hours or two days and he, you could just hear him howling in the undergrowth. Um, it was so annoying and so embarrassing. The neighbors would call the police and he would come back caked with mud and he would come back with his head hanging down and go, I promise, I, I promise I will never, ever run away again. I'm so, so sorry, Master Matt. I will never run away again. <laughs> kind of choking up as dogs do, you know. And then next day, boom, he's running again. When I first looked at Dwight, as we were considering adopting him, I thought, this is going to be so easy. It's going to be so easy to love him. Like six years later into it, and he's still running, still coming home caked with mud. It's like, it's not easy to love this dog. How do you love a dog that's that naughty? You know, I think about this, how this happens a lot in life. You first get to know someone, a person, a friend, a spouse. You first get to know uh, a church, a small group. Uh, you first get to know a city or a company or an organization, and it's easy to love. But then when you really, really get to know that person or that place or that institution, when you see the underbelly, when you see the brokenness, it's not so easy to love, is it? I'm haunted by a question that a mentor of mine said, uh, a guy named Stephen Garber, who uh, wrote in his book, a really great book, Visions of Vocation, this question. Can you know the world, really know the world in all its brokenness and still love it? Can you know the people of the world in all their brokenness and still love them? That's a question that has haunted me for 10 years. It's so tempting to check out. It's so tempting to respond to a broken world with anger or with outrage or with just escapism, or with uh, numbness. 
in our scripture reading from Jeremiah and overall throughout this series, we meet a man, a prophet, who for 40 years saw a miracle take place in his heart. He maintained his love for broken, wayward, disobedient people of God. Now, at times, it was hard. But I kept asking myself the question as I'm diving deeper into this book, how? How did he do that for 40 years? And they were really bad. How did he do that? Well, I actually had to go all the way back to Jeremiah 1 and start reading the book over again from front to back. And I think I found the key answer. I'll, I'll get to it. But, but before we get there, let's remember the lay of the land. Remember how bad this was and see the connections between Jeremiah's time and our time. Because Jeremiah lived in a time of crisis. He lived in a time of disorder. He lived in a time of societal disintegration. He lived in a time when disaster was coming. And I'll get to all of that. But it was first and foremost a spiritual crisis. Remember back in chapter 2 where the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have made for themselves cisterns, broken, muddy cisterns that cannot hold water. They would rather have broken, muddy cisterns than me the fountain of living water. That's the evil. That's the spiritual crisis at the root of everything. But it was also a leadership crisis. So the religious leaders were just superficial. They were glib. They were gutless. They wouldn't tell you the truth. So Jeremiah said, you people, you're always saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. You're healing the wound of my people superficially. It was also a political leadership crisis. The kings of Israel were corrupt They were unjust. They didn't care about the cry of the poor. It was also a social justice crisis. In later on in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord will say, execute justice in the morning. Why? Because they weren't executing justice. And deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like a fire. Then it says, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice. God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the marginalized. It was a social justice crisis. It was also a judgment of God crisis. As you're reading through the book of Jeremiah, you will see over and over again, the Lord saying that he's going to judge with his wrath, his wayward people. Now, if you're like me, a modern person, living in 2020, you read all these judgment passages and you think, oh, I just I feel so uncomfortable with that because I, I want a nice God. I want a loving God. I don't want an angry God that's going to judge people. And I would say, I would ask, but do you really? Is that all you want? Really? Doesn't something within you churn with anger and longing when you see blatant injustice, when you see blatant racial injustice, when you see blatant economic injustice, when you see blatant injustice against the poor? 
My son lives in Papua New Guinea where every day he faces uh, people who are incredibly poor and underserved in medical, in terms of medical care. And, and a lot of the money is in the country, but it's just locked up in corruption and injustice. And that makes me angry. Don't you long for the day when justice will roll down like an ever flowing stream, as the prophet Amos said? We do long for that. We long for that. Well, what if, what if the God of the Bible, the God revealed in the person of Jesus, is so merciful and yet so just, so just in his judgment, and so clean and so clear and so thorough that it will be done right? It will be done perfectly, but it's also so thorough that you and I stand under the wrath of God. You and I are in trouble. Not just the bad people, not just those people, but us. We're all stand, that's, we all stand under the justice of judgment of God. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the judgment of God crisis in the book of Jeremiah. So he's got all these crises coming together, but Jeremiah also has a very personal crisis. It's very personal to Jeremiah. So you remember Father Aaron, and he kicked off this series back in, um, 10 weeks ago, chapter one, Jeremiah gets called by God to proclaim uh, God's judgment and mercy to the nations. And Jeremiah starts with just this flush of enthusiasm and excitement. He's a young kid. He's, you know, maybe in his late teens or early 20s. He's a young adult and he's filled with excitement. And then what happens? We see throughout 40 years, people mock him. People insult him. People ignore him. People ridicule him. People beat him. People throw him in prison. People throw him in a, a, a deep well where he's sinking in the mud. The king gets his message on a, on a scroll, like on a, on a book, and he takes it just a little piece at a time, and he cuts it off. Jeremiah's the message that the Lord gave Jeremiah that was breaking Jeremiah's heart. The king takes it a little piece at a time, rips it off, and throws it into the fire. <laughs> Judgment of God. Burn it. Burn it all. Every turn, Jeremiah faces resistance. That's the way life works, doesn't it? It's not always, we might have a great beginning, but then we see the corruption, we see the evil, we see the resistance. You know, I read a poem when I was on uh, vacation. I read a poem by a, a guy named uh, Stephen Spender. Stephen Spender was a British poet in the 20th century. He wrote a poem called What I, what I Had Expected. And this just, oh man, this really got to me. So he begins the first stanza. He says, what I expected was, and he basically says, what I expected was that life would be a great battle and a great adventure, and it would be amazing. And then, the step, sec, and then I would rest. In the second stanza, he, said, he says this, what I had not foreseen was the gradual day, weakening the will. Leaking the brightness away. I thought life would be a great, bold adventure. But I didn't foresee the weakening of the will. My own weakness. I didn't see the leaking the brightness away. Leaking the hope away. Leaking the joy away. Leaking the optimism away. Leaking the innocence away. Leaking the trust away. Leaking into cynicism, leaking into stoicism. I didn't foresee that. But here's the miracle. We, I can so relate to that. Jeremiah didn't go that way. He didn't leak the brightness away. 
He's actually a man on fire. One point he says, there is in my heart a burning fire shut up in my bones. So for 40 years, he proclaims the stern judgment and the lavish mercy of God. How did he do it? He tapped into something. He tapped into something deep and alive and refreshing. He's like a man in the desert, thirsty, sun-baked land, and he finds a stream of living water and he taps into it and it refreshes him and it strengthens him. That's what he taps into. What was it? It was the steadfast love covenant, tender love of God the Father for his wayward people. He tapped into the gospel, what we call the gospel. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. So I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah. I'm starting in chapter 1. I'm, gonna, I'm read, reading through it thinking, how did he do this? How did he do this for 40 years? Because I have a hard time doing this for four days. And he did it for 40 years. So I'm reading chapter 12. And there's a lot of judgment in chapter 12. It's a very stern passage. But then sprinkled throughout, there's this amazing thing that God does when he speaks to his people. He calls them repeatedly these terms and names of endearment. Now remember, he's going to judge them because justice must come. Justice must come. But look at what he calls them. So in verse 7, He says, I have forsaken my house. Then he calls them my heritage. Then he calls them the beloved of my soul. That's my favorite. I love that. So God calls his wayward, disobedient, God forsaken, idol worshiping, unjust, socially injustice, poor, wrecked people. He calls them the beloved of my soul. Verse 8, he calls them my heritage. Verse 9, he calls them again my heritage. Verse 10, he calls them my vineyard. This is my vineyard. I care for these people. Verse 10, he calls them my portion. And then in the very next line, like Hebrew poetry often does, it it ramps it up a notch. He calls them not just my, my portion, but he calls them my pleasant portion. I love that. Almost 50 times throughout the book of Jeremiah, God calls his people, my people. You are disobedient people. You are wayward people. You are stubborn people. You are royal messed up people, but you are my people. And God really loves them. I was talking to a friend at a coffee shop. And uh, she's not a believer and she doesn't go to church. And she's uh, so she always jokes with me like, oh, so what are you chatting about this Sunday? She calls my sermons chats. So she said, what are you chatting about this Sunday? I thought for a minute. I said, you know, I think the chat is the incredible love of God for messed up people. And she kind of holds, leans back and laughs. She goes, oh, man. I want to be in the front row for that one. That sounds like a sermon for me. And I said, well, why don't you come? She said, oh, no, the church would fall in on me. Um, and she said, I said, well, why don't you watch a live stream? No, 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 no. I can't possibly do that. But that is, that is the essence of 
the gospel that we never get over or we never should get over. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The Apostle Paul just nails it. He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Towards us. Towards you. Towards you. Towards you. God demonstrates his love toward you. In that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. God the Father, God the Son, the triune God, God the Spirit, together in outpouring love for us, sent Christ to die for us. While we were good? No. While we were okay? No. While we were sinners. Now in the immediate context, let's just get this like this. In the immediate context, he's talking to the Jewish people. He's made a covenant with the Jewish people. Very important for us to get that. It's a covenant that God will not renege on. God still loves his Jewish people. If God makes a covenant, he doesn't drop it. Sometimes Christians act like, well, God's done with the Jews. He's on to the Christians now. No. God made a covenant with the Jewish people. And the Bible promises and New Testament promises that there will come a day when there will be a massive ingathering of the Jewish people to Jesus the Messiah. That's already started to happen in certain places around the world. There's a trickle, but there's going to be a blood, the Bible tells us. So it starts there, but then it extends to the church. We are the people, the bride of Christ, his bride. How, how much more intimate can you get than that? It's more than my heritage. It's more than my portion. It's more than my vineyard. It is the beloved of my soul, my bride, and I lay down my life for you. But then it's not only the Jewish people. It's not only the church. It's the world. It's the broken world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God loves that world, and Jeremiah taps into that love. In the midst of his crisis, in the midst of his societal crisis, in the midst of his personal crisis, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his tears, he taps into that steadfast love of God. As a matter of fact, Old Testament scholars would tell you, there's all this debate about sometimes in the book of Jeremiah. Wait, wait, now who's talking here? Is it Jeremiah or is it the Lord? Who's, who's, whose heart is grieving? Who's, who's talking about his love for his wayward people? Who's weeping for his people? It could be Jeremiah, it could be the Lord. There's these passages that are just debated. And one person said, at times you can't tell because the voice of one expresses the heart of the other. And the tears of one flowed for the grief of the other. Heart and heart bonded together. Tears flowing between the two of them, the prophet and the Lord. Jeremiah tapped into that in over 40 years. It just, it, he, he integrated the love of God into his heart. It was not just a concept out there. It's not just a theological concept. It became his heart. For 40 years, until his eyes began to see what God saw, until his heart began to beat in tune with God's heart, until his tears began to flow with the tears of God. That is the only way to answer that question. How do you keep loving a broken world? 
you tap into the love of God for you and for the world. You know, I was uh, in downtown, I was in the Austin neighborhood in Chicago uh, a couple weeks ago with Pastor Michael Wright, who's uh, our African-American pastor friend who has a church there um, in the Austin neighborhood, uh, been a friend of mine for the last four or five years. He invited us to come. He wanted us to help with his revival. Um, you know, it's a tough neighborhood. You know, in Chicago, uh, the murder rate this year in Chicago is, is up 52% over last year. Uh, 52%. There have been um, over 400 murders through June. Uh, actually, murder rates are up in a lot of the major cities around, uh, around the United States. It's a tough place to be a pastor. So Pastor Michael said, um, he said, he just split us up into small groups. He said, just walk around the neighborhood, get to know people and, and, and pray for them. Ask if they want prayer and then invite them to the free meal that we're having and invite, invite them to the revival meeting. So I'm walking around thinking, man, I just, I feel really out of place in this neighborhood, first of all, but I really, I want to know these people. And so one of the first houses we stopped at, there was four young guys and we said, hey, we want to do it. And, and they said, yeah, 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 yeah. Your people, they already told us. They already told us. And uh, we know all about it. And I thought, well, those guys will never show up. They were the first guys there. All four of them showed up. And Pastor Michael, I, just this beautiful scene where Pastor Michael laying his hands on each of those four young guys with such tenderness and with such love, praying for the young men of his community. I just absolutely love that. Pastor Michael modeled for me the heart of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah models the heart of God. I said, this is a battle. This is one of the greatest battles you will face in your life. Is to have your heart alive and warm with the love of God for a lost and broken world. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, there's going to be coming a day, a day of lawlessness, he called it, when people's, the love of many will grow cold. I think we're in that day. The love of many is growing cold. It's either growing cold with just checking out, numbing, disengaging. It's growing cold with outrage. That's not love. That's just outrage. How will you stay tapped into the gospel? Like Jeremiah, tapped into the steadfast love of God. The battle, that's the battle you're fighting. Now, some of you, let me just be really honest. Some of you have tapped into something else. You've tapped into something not life-giving. You've tapped into anger. You've tapped into fear. You've tapped into selfishness. You've tapped into isolation. You've tapped into fantasy. You've tapped into escape. You've tapped into performance. Just do more. Try harder. You've tapped into shame. And it's taken over. And it's leaking the brightness away. So let me ask you, let me ask you at some time in this service to be honest with the Lord and to name and repent and relinquish whatever it is that you've tapped into that's sucking life out of you, 
that's taking the light, light the the lightness away. That's that's making your love grow cold. And then tell the Lord that you want to tap into Him again. Tap into His steadfast love. You know, you're at this service. That's what you're doing. Tap. You're tapping into the steadfast love of the Lord. You're tapping into the gospel. At Eucharist, we tap into the gospel. What do we say? Feed on him. Feed on Christ. Tap into him. Feed on him with your hearts by faith, with thanksgiving. Every time you open the Bible, ask the Lord, Lord, help me tap into you. Help me tap into the gospel. Every time you go before the Lord in honest prayer, and just say, Lord, help me to tap into you. Every time you let a friend reach out to you or you reach out to the friend, you're helping the body of Christ tap into that. May the Lord Jesus meet you this morning. My friends, the beloved of my soul, as the Lord said, the beloved of my soul at Emmanuel Anglican. Let